We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Stop Talk Radio, the world for people who think. Good morning, Sicily, <laughs> and wherever you happen to be, good afternoon, good evening. Um, welcome to the maiden voyage of the Truth Perspective, brought to you by the newly rebranded SOT Radio Network, um, where we deliver full-spectrum truth directly to your eardrums. Now, um, oh, to introduce who we've got here, we've got a room full of hosts and co-hosts here today. We've got... Um, from Sotnet, we've got William, Elon, Meg, Rao, Karen, Annie, and Carolyn. And I am Harrison Cayley, your host, and for future weeks, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> yep, okay. Okay, that's enough applause. <laughs> we've, uh, just so everyone knows, uh, in case you haven't heard the announcement on our website or forum or Facebook, um, this is not an, a rescheduled show. This is a brand new show uh, for SOT. We will be broadcasting every Saturday at the same time, and Neil and Joe's show will still be going on every Sunday, so you get twice the amount of SOT radio fun. And so, yeah, so be sure to tune in tomorrow. We've got another show coming then and all the weeks after that. And just to give you a, a little uh, idea of what the truth perspective is going to be about. We're going to be covering a little bit of everything. Now that means we'll be going over the news, um, like we do on the other show. Um, so we'll be talking about current events, but we'll also be talking about probably, you know, a whole host of other subjects, kind of whatever we're into for that week. Um, science, uh, psychology, history, um, health. We'll pro- we'll try to get into as much stuff as possible. And as always, uh, we'd love to hear from you if you want to call in. If you've got a question or a comment or just a story you want to bring up or a rant, we love rants. So feel free. The number is 718-508-9499. And you can call that number from anywhere in the United States. So uh, get started. Well, why doesn't everyone just say hi here? Hey there. Hi. Yeah. Hello. So this is being our first show. We're still kind of ironing out all the kinks and bugs. So if there are any problems, um, just let us know in the chat room. If you can't hear someone or anything like that, let us know and we'll try to fix it. And we'll probably have better sound in coming weeks as we get all of our equipment in. Um, but yeah, to start out, um, well, what's been going on the last couple of weeks? There's been quite a few big stories that have come out. Um, probably the biggest from the last week has had to do with Russia. Now, that's this whole South Stream project. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with the South Stream, this was a, an, uh, a gas pipeline that has been in the works and planned. It was announced first in 2007 
Now, this was to be a, you know, this huge pipeline to, to go through the Black Sea and terminate in Austria and Italy. So this would have been a way of getting gas from Russia to the EU. Now, of, now, since 2007, the EU changed their laws and changed their competition and, and energy legislation laws and which made the deal as it existed when it was first signed non-compliant. So there's been this whole controversy that has sprung up. Um, I, I, I don't, I can't remember when it started, but I know in May of this year they were, they were talking about it and the EU is basically saying, to Russia to try to get on board and revise the the deal because it basically says now that Russia can't own the pipeline and the product so and the gas that has to be um, that that violates their competition laws so they've been um, harassing the the EU states involved and that includes Bulgaria. Now, the thing about Bulgaria, what's interesting about that is that, uh, McCain, our favorite, you know, U.S. politician for saying stupid stuff, um, he recently told Sputnik, the, the rebranded, um, English language Russian news wire, um, that quote, he's satisfied with Bulgaria's decision not to allow construction of the proposed South Stream pipeline project. Because Bulgaria was the one that was saying, no, 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 uh, you know, basically um, blocking the the access to start construction there. So he said, quote, uh, I'm just glad our friends in Europe canceled the pipeline that was going to go through Europe. Um, so in the Tuesday press release, he, he stated that his personal efforts to urge the Bulgarian government to look toward Europe to secure its energy interests and refrain from working with Russia quote, were successful and culminated with Putin's decision to forego the pipeline project entirely. So that's how it went. The EU was trying to get Russia to comply with these new legis- these new rules and regulations. And so this was kind of like a, a bluff to get Russia to go along with what they wanted. Primarily it was the U.S. I mean, the EU, the countries involved would have benefited from this, especially Bulgaria. They would have gotten money from uh, kind of like a, a tax or um, just a fee. What's it called? Yeah. Yeah. The transit fees for allowing the, the pipeline to, and whatever's travels through their country. So Bulgaria bows down to the will of their U.S. masters and uh, goes against it. And so what does Russia do? No, Russia doesn't um, say, oh, you know, OK, guys, we'll go along with what you say <laughs> on December 1st. Russia, uh, Putin held a press conference with, uh, with Erdogan in Turkey and said, okay, the, um, you know, the deal's not going to work, so we're not doing it. And instead of that, we're going to redirect that gas that would have gone to Europe to other countries, primarily Turkey, and we're actually going to build a whole new pipeline to Turkey, to Turkey in the future. So now Turkey is the one that gets to redistribute this gas to European countries and they get to make a lot of money off of it and the European countries end up paying more and of course, you know, getting less out of it. So another one of those blunders for the ES, the, the US and the EU, especially the EU for just doing whatever the US tells it to do. And one thing that was yeah. really interesting is Putin got an extra little dig in by telling Bulgaria that they should go back to the EU and say, 
that they should be paid the four hundred million dollars that yeah. they would have made because mm-hmm. they went along with it. This guy's such a savvy businessman. He's just a really good businessman, and that's stunned. West. Yeah, they they really weren't expecting the the project to be canceled like that. They, you know, and that's bear what, in mind that Turkey is part of NATO. It, yeah, which really puts some uh, interesting pressure on the NATO countries. Now, is that going to uh, create other NATO nations to have the the gall to go in up against uh, NATO as well? and start seeking their own means of doing things as Turkey is setting a precedence of doing. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see. That That is really interesting that Turkey is a NATO member. And, of course, Turkey has been one of the so-called U.S. allies in uh, the, you know, the, quote, war against terror or ISIS. And, you know, what's interesting here is that Turkey's kind of a, a shady character in this whole thing. I mean... There's the the reports from Press TV. There's the American uh, reporter Serena Shim was killed there uh, in Syria recently. Uh, she was reporting about the the supplies and uh, and stuff going going into Syria in NGO labels from Turkey. The the German Deutsche Welle um, that reported that Turkey is supplying supplies to ISIS. Um, so there, there's that whole interesting thing going on there. I mean, and of course, are they doing that on their own or have they been doing it, um, uh, for the U S um, and what's, and is anything going to change now? Like, so there's this new, this new kind of, um, upping of the alliance between Russia and Turkey. Um, you know, where's that going to lead? Uh, I don't know. Maybe some of our listeners <laughs> have some predictions for what's going to happen there. Um, U.S. is applying pressure on Hungary. Recently, John McCain blamed Hungary prime minister as neo-fascist yeah. because Hungary's prime minister was more leaning towards Putin for its economic advantage. Yeah, there's that. Um, there's, a, there's another thing. It's that Turkey may um, align with the BRICS, yeah. and that will change uh, the balance of power a bit. A bit more, and and geographically they are a more natural fit for the Eurasian, Eurasian Union than they are for the European Union. Yeah, and um, well, is there anything else? You know, anything else about Turkey we want to talk about? Um, you know, I think it's just a kind of like a wait and see for to see what kind of happens with that now that this is gone through. You want to say something, Elon? Well, yeah. it, it's just kind of interesting, uh, you know, when the whole, um, is it the Mari Mara uh, episode happened? Um, Turkey had a real animosity and anger towards Israel for... Oh, that uh, was the, 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 flotilla the flotilla, yeah. That came, and they were, you know, Edrigan was pretty outspoken on the subject, and uh, as it happens, Obama had to, like, call Netanyahu and Edrigan on the phone and try and make peace between the two of them. So my feeling is that uh, Turkey is somewhat of a wild card in this whole situation, given all these other pieces of uh, information. All right, then. Moving on. (laughs) Well, so that happened on December 1st. Now, two days later, um, there's news. There's news in Chechnya. There was what? Well, what had happened was 
uh, it was after midnight and these three cars had gone through or were trying to go through a checkpoint to get into the capital there. And they were stopped by the, basically the border patrol uh, to enter the city, um, the, the checkpoint there. And these three cars were carrying well, um, nine or 10 um, of the Chechen, you know, separatist militant terrorist group um, guys. The Chechen Emirate. The Chechen Emirate, as they call themselves. And they were trying to get in the city. They shot and killed, um, pro- you know, around four of these police officers and um, went got into the city and ended up holding up in the the press house building, um, a publishing house building. And so um, there was uh, this anti-terrorist you know operation there, and the, so they brought out the Chechen special forces guys and pretty much surrounded them, took control of the building, ended up killing all of them. Uh, turned out there were 10, 10 died on both sides, actually. So 10 police officers were killed and 10 of these terrorist guys and about 28 police officers uh, wounded in the process. And so this was for, for Chechnya, um, kind of a minor attack, uh, a minor, relatively minor incident. I mean, Chechnya has been experienced, has experienced these things, uh, for years and up until, uh, before the second Chechen war, uh, that Putin and Medvedev initiated in what was it 2004? Can't remember exactly. I mean, this this has been going. This kind of stuff has been going on for years. It, essentially, I mean, despite what you hear in the Western media, um, the what was going on there was, was basically a variation on ISIS. Like these were the kind of people that the, that the Russians and the Chechens had to deal with. It wasn't these you know peaceful, well intentioned freedom fighter separatists. Um, these were, you know, what the U.S. should and would any other situation call terrorists. Terrorists. It was real terrorism. These people would execute people, just put people to death, um, you know, chop heads off, all that kind of stuff. And yet the U.S. was supporting these people, not only like politically, financially, financially, um, Training them, uh, sending in foreign fighters from from other countries to basically destabilize the region, destabilize the country, and so. Um, but things have been, I'd say, relatively quiet um, since the end of the civil war there. Um, so I don't know. That just kind of got me wondering if this was um, coming right after the South Stream cancellation announcement in Turkey. If this was kind of, uh, you know, a message from, you know, the people that actually control all these terrorist groups, and we know who that is. It's the, it's the Western intelligence services. It's the CIA, uh, MI5, Mossad. Um, that's where all these people come from and how they get all their supplies and money and training. And so this, and this had happened, this attack, um, the, the evening, I guess that would have been the early morning of December 3rd. Third to fourth, and that this was just hours before um, President Putin's annual address to the the Federation in Russia in in Moscow. So this came just hours before um, um, the what's the Chechen leader's name? Is it Kadyrov? Something like that. He had actually gone to to Moscow that morning to to speak with Putin and. 
it was actually a really interesting exchange. Um, Kadyrov had said to Putin that he was basically, he felt ashamed and that um, he shouldn't have let this happen um, in the Russian Federation. And he basically took full responsibility for this happening on this important day. And then Putin responds saying, oh, no, it's it's okay. You know, you took responsibility for it. There's nothing you could have done. You've done everything that you could have done. And, you know, they shake hands and it's all it's all good. Now, that just struck me as 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 totally different than the than the way people and politicians, you know, interact um, in a Western context. Now, for a Westerner, of course, they they might see that as kind of this this lord and client relationship. But I don't know. Personally, I just see it as as decency. And the fact that Kadyrov would probably take responsibility for something like this, um, that that whole idea of even just taking responsibility for for things that happen in your country and the problems in your country, and this actually happened. Um, you, you saw another great example of that just hours later when Putin gave his annual address, and um, th- that's that's just what. St- stuck out for me so much is that if you watch thing if you watch politicians in the states if you watch obama or any of these guys when they give public statements they never really admit what's going wrong in the country they may have a few you know they may pay a few platitudes to just to to certain problems that are going on but it's it it, you just it never seems sincere and it never seems sincere because they actually never end up doing anything about it and the real problems they never mention the real problems are the things that you hear about in protests. And they're just slogans and never any concrete plans. Given. Yeah. Just, you know, we're going to have a, a committee look at it. And the committee looks at it, they spend a lot of money, and then it ends up in a report which sits on a shelf. <clears throat> and when was the last time you heard someone like Obama say, you know, America has a really big corruption problem? You know, we have politicians taking money they shouldn't um you know embezzling funds we've got lobby groups that are influencing political decisions we have um politicians uh, congressmen and senators that make decisions totally counter to the will of their people when was the last time you heard anyone say that and yet when you when you look at a, a politician like vladimir putin he actually says he says these things if you if you actually read or listen to the speech that he gave, he's very candid about the problems that are in Russian society and what they are doing about them and what they plan, what they have been and doing about them and what they plan on doing about them in the future. And, uh, well, I've just, I've got a, while we're on that subject, I've got a couple quotes, uh, that I want to read from that. Well, first of all, it was pretty interesting because, um, Putin made pretty clear that Crimea was, is, and always will be a part of Russia. So a good statement that, um, you know, any plans that Kiev might have to retake uh, Crimea are pipe dreams. Uh, and that's as simple as that is. And he also pointed out that the, in pretty clear terms, that the EU is completely under the thumb of the, of the U.S., the decisions they're making serve the U.S. and do not serve the interests of the EU countries themselves. And that contrary to their attitude, uh, Russia will do everything to keep its own sovereignty. And he had a, a nice little pithy quote there. He said, uh, just, as, just as it did not work for Hitler 
with his people-hating ideas, who set out to destroy Russia and push us back beyond the Urals, everyone should remember how it ended. So <laughs> he said similar things a few times in the past few months, but uh, that was pretty nice because these, you know, whatever plans that, I don't know what these, these people are thinking if they're trying, if they want, do they really want to get into a, you know, a full, full-blown military conflict with Russia? Do they think, do they think they can win that? Um, you know, I don't think so. <laughs> and I don't know, maybe Kissinger doesn't think so either because, you know, he came out with, what did, what did Kissinger say recently? He came out with a whole interview with, uh, Deutsche Welle. Was that the same it one? A, it was a German newspaper saying that he thought that the whole line that the U.S. was taking on Ukraine was wrong and that it was just going to dig them into a deeper and deeper hole. And it struck me that this was so – Kiss is, is like one of the elder statesmen of the empire of chaos, if you will. And for him to come out so publicly, it was – you start thinking, what does he really want? Because to, to so publicly oppose the line of this, this foreign policy that the U.S. has been pursuing, it's, it's just so unlike him <laughs> that you gotta wonder, what, what's, what's, the, what's the deeper game? What is he doing? I mean, he even talked in, uh, about the federalization of Ukraine. He mm-hmm. seemed to be for that, which is quite a shock as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the, the, then was it just a, a week or two ago, there was that uh, opinion piece in the Washington Post, mm-hmm. basically saying all the same things. That was the wife of, what's his name, Stephen Cohen. He's a, a pretty, uh, he's kind of like Noam Chomsky. He he writes a lot of the, you know, he's got the same kind of attitude. And, uh, and it was yeah. something that had been proposed almost a year ago. Like it was almost point for point, something mm-hmm. that had come up very early on, and all of a sudden this idea is now acceptable. Very strange. Well, William, you were ta- I was ta- we were talking earlier today, and you mentioned uh, with this South Stream thing as an example, and it's, it seems to be it's just one in a list of kind of um, Russian over U.S. fails. Uh, what were some of the other ones? Right, uh- of course, we had uh, early on with the um, Georgia and Ossetia mm-hmm. uh, fiasco there, where Russia just blitzkrieged right in there and took control of the situation when we saw what was going on there, which totally surprised everybody. They were all stunned, and Shashkavili was ended up eating his tie. <laughs> he was so worried about the whole situation. <laughs> he he looks like a tie eater when you when you look at him speak. He's uh, he looks like a three-year-old in like a, a middle-aged body. Uh, <laughs> I guess that's that's the grown-up's pacifier. Yeah. <laughs> and the other wonderful move was uh, with Syria. Um, Nate, uh, U.S. was about ready to go and bomb them over these, mm-hmm. these uh, alleged chemical weapons being used. And uh, when the truth came out, and then Russia came out and came with a proposal to have those. Uh, chemicals destroyed and Syria was all for it and that completely diffused the situation mm-hmm. much to the chagrin of the rest of the world. Yeah. So again, you see this US EU short term thinking, but you've got the Russia with the long term view and it's just, it's just blowing away the US and NATO in, in all their moves. That's, that's actually, I think that's one of Russia, Russia and, and Putin's biggest, um, 
advantages that they've got going is that they think long term and they plan long term. And what I, when I saw this news, I was just kind of blown away because because it did just come out of nowhere. And it, when I when I thought about it and I started reading a lot of the analysis of it and what's actually going on, it just kind of it, it really blew me away. Just just what a good move it was. It was like you don't hear anything at all, and then just bam, it happens. Right. There's no threats. There's no lead up to it. It's just they, you know, they're taking in all this information and what's going on, formulating their decision, and then bam, it's just they do it, and it, it kind of leaves everyone else with their jaw dropped, um, saying, you know, what just happened, and what what makes well to give it a little bit of context. There's something that. Uh, that Putin said in an interview recently that he gave to the TASS um, news agency from Russia. Um, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty extensive interview, but there's just this one, this one quote. Um, the interviewer asked him about his decision-making process. And so Putin said, uh, I never take arbitrary decisions, decisions that may entail consequences I don't foresee. And if I cannot see the consequences, I prefer to wait for the time being. It's like overtaking another car on the road. Never try unless you are certain. You must be pretty sure there's nobody down there on your way. The road, may, the road may look empty because it goes down in front of you and then up, and you may be just unaware another vehicle is speeding in the opposite direction. You have to be absolutely sure that nobody is driving the other way, that you can really see the whole road in front, that you are in control of the situation. If you are sure, go ahead. Um, and then the, the interviewer asked in another question, if he has ever made in any of his presidencies, if he ever made a, a hasty, um, you know, rash decision, and uh, Putin just simply responded, "No." <laughs> so, uh, from what we know about, you know, what well, from what we can see, based on the last twelve, thirteen years, um, and the way Russia, you know, composes itself and does its international geopolitical business. Um, you, you can get an idea of kind of um, how they play the game, and this kind of epitomizes it. That the the decisions they make are, you know, they've thought about them, they've thought about the consequences, the outcomes, and if they make a decision like this, you can be pretty sure that it's out the way they think it's going to turn out, and which means, you know, good for Russia and bad for everyone else. They have, uh, I'm not sure whether you could call it a characteristic of the Russian culture, the Russian people, they seem to be endlessly patient. They can wait. They don't feel the need to hit a crisis or see a situation developing and have to react to it immediately. That seems to be one of the chief downfalls of the states and the West in general. It's just like, we have to solve this now. This seems like the best solution. And they just they just go for it without looking at the longer term consequences. And Russia has consistently, consistently won out because they have this ability to sit calmly and watch for the right moment. Mm -hmm. And that's that's a judo thing too. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And also, Russia has been a superpower in four times in the last thousand years. So. Mm -hmm. They have the experience. And they've never been conquered. <laughs> well, Putin's also mm -hmm. a very serious student of history. 
Mm-hmm. And so he's he's got this mindset, he and his advisors, of looking for the patterns. Nothing new has ever happened. So they, I'm sure they look to historical examples of similar situations and then just look at how each of them played out. If this was, move was taken, this is how it came out. And if they took that move, that's how it played out. Mm-hmm. And so the, his, the U.S. And, and the whole, again, Western cabal, seems to just have no background to look at or they're not willing to or or they think this time it'll be different. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or they think this time it'll be the same <laughs> in, in the sense that they've, you know, for the since World War Two, they've been getting their way mm-hmm. and, you know, they've been the, the dominant global superpower and they just think that they can do the same thing over and over again and get the same results. Well, you know, that doesn't really work. Like, especially when you're dealing in, in the, in things like black ops and these intelligence operations and things going on behind the scenes. Like, I mean, one of the, one of the first rules of the intelligence game is that, you know, once you've figured out your opponent's trick, you know, you're, you're prepared for it. You know what's going to happen. So you have to come up with the new tricks. So the fact that they, the, the U.S. just keeps trying the same thing and, you know, it's just, are they, are they really that stupid? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I think they are. It's and it's also the fact that they're psychopaths. I mean, the psychopaths—they live in this in this contractile, self-involved world where everything they create real, reality and everything goes the way they want it to. Now that can work for a while. I mean, it can work as long as you like. It works with the EU countries because they they. Mindset. They've got the same. Well, they've got the same mindset, and, and the EU countries are just totally in this subservient vassal state mindset or mentality, where they just, you know, they're being blackmailed um, all over the place. Now, who knows what kind of, you know, all the. <laughs> well, we can guess some of the dirt that that the U.S. and especially the Mossad has on politicians the world over. I mean, if we. Yeah, well, probably the worst of it is when you get get into a little bit of a, a little bit of the history of these pedophile rings. I mean, um, France, Belgium, uh, the Netherlands, UK, even like Portugal, um, the US. Um, you know, since the 80s, there have been just stories coming out of all these countries and more about these high-level pedophile rings, um, where you know you'll have a, a whole bunch of these people, like judges, politicians police chiefs um um lawyers etc all get all get together to have these parties where they exploit children and um these like the stories are just horrifying when you read about them um i'd really recommend that you know everyone that gets a chance check out uh nick bryant's book um the franklin scandal that's about the uh this one of these cases that came up in the states in the 80s and you know it's still ongoing in the sense that a lot of the witnesses are still alive, still telling their stories, but no one listens to them. Um, but Nick Bryant did, and he wrote a really good book about it, getting into all the details. And that, that it's probably one of the most difficult books that you'll, that you'll ever read. Just um, the stuff that went on. And it's the same thing in, in Europe. And so what happens is that at these, at these parties, of course, people are taking pictures and once you go to one of these parties and you've got a picture, of, you know, uh, in a compromising position, 
not necessarily, you know, well, if you think about the different scenarios that, that these people can get into, it can be just, you know, an affair, a fling that someone manages to get a picture of and then holds over your head for the rest of your political career, or it can be something really nasty. And that is a very easy way of keeping people in line because, you know, I don't, I don't know a person that wouldn't be, you know, horribly embarrassed to have aspects of their personal life, you know, shared around. And, and these situations can also be used against these people just out of context. Mm -hmm. And, And of course, they can exploit it to their own story and there's nothing that you can do against it because <laughs> you don't want to bring up that you were there in the first place. Mm-hmm. That's what makes Putin even more remarkable is because they've been trying for practically his whole political career to dig up some dirt. They can't find him. He doesn't have any. Mm-hmm. Even the allegations. He's, you know, the owner of Gazprom, he's got money swirled away in Switzerland and then when you start digging, none of it's true. Yeah. None of it is true. Well, actually, that actually reminds me of uh, Julius, guys, Julius Caesar. <laughs> now, uh, a little anecdote. Um, I heard this recently because, uh, well, actually, you know, there are a lot of comparisons that can be made between uh, Caesar and Putin. Of course, Caesar w- went down in history as a, uh, a ruthless dictator who wanted to usurp control of the Roman Republic and turn it into a monarchy with him at the top and everyone else, you know, bowing down to his will. And we've got Putin and everyone says that he's a dictator. He's the ruler of an authoritarian country and an authoritarian governmental system. And, but when you start looking close, more closely at it, it's not, you know, it's not exactly that clear cut. Now, Caesar, he actually, the, the the reforms that he pro- proposed and the things that he was trying to do trying to do he was what we'd call a populist he was doing things that would benefit the people benefit the the roman empire as a whole he would give citizenship to people that the 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 ruling oligarchy would just cringe at the idea of you know of being associated with these foreigners these barbarians Citizenship, giving land to to the vets, um, you know, food distribution, um, easing of tax laws and and existing tax or easing of the debt situation and um, the whole money lender, the whole money lender phenomenon. Um, and when you read the actual the historians that write about these sorts of things, they they really show their bias. Like uh, Plutarch, who was one of the biographers of uh, of Caesar and, you know, many other Romans and Greeks. Um, some of the language he uses, like the, the tribunes were a, a political position in Rome that actually, that advocated for the people. So not the ruling class, but for the people and things that they wanted and needed. And the way Plutarch phrases it is that the, you know, he, he phrases it in terms of the, the boldest and most arrogant tribunes and the, the, the proposals that they would make. And then, uh, referring that making reference to Caesar uh, in regard to that, um, citing Caesar's, quote, dis- uh, disgraceful and humiliating attempts to ingratiate himself with the people. <laughs> I know. So when, a, so when a, a member of the ruling class actually does something that's good for the people, it's uh, disgraceful and humiliating that he would lower himself to the level of the common person. And, you know, he's only doing it because uh, he wants the people to support him, you know, in his power grab. 
well, these people are just projecting their own inner mindset. They don't give one, you know, they don't care at all about these people. All they want is to have their rich lifestyle to continue making all the money that they that they already have and, and acquire more and more. They don't care for the people. So then it must be that a person advocating for the people doesn't actually think that way because, you know, everyone's like me. Everyone thinks like me. And so he must he must just be trying to get support from the people, but he doesn't actually care about them. Well, you know, sorry, but some people actually do care about their fellow human beings when they see them suffering. It's like that's a thing called humanity that, uh, you know, unfortunately seems to be um, not very present in our world these days, at least among those, you know, movers and shakers in politics and the media and, um, you know, the halls of power. And so relating this back to, to the whole thing about, you know, about personal integrity and being spotless in their own personal career. Well, when, when Caesar started his, his political career, he started as a, basically, um, um, basically like a lawyer, um, arguing cases, um, against and for different individuals, um, bringing up charges against them. And this was a, a way to kind of make your, make a name for yourself in Roman society at the time is that you'd take on, you know, one of the big oligarchs and try to get him for, you know, extorting the province that he was, um, in charge of the previous year or years back. And so you'd have a public trial and all people would, would listen to the, the rhetoric speech and it was kind of like an entertainment thing. And, and then the, the speeches would be published afterwards. Well, um, Caesar took this one guy, uh, Dolabella to trial. And, uh, I can't remember the details. I think it was just an extortion case. Um, but in, in response, in his response, Dolabella, um, he tried to find whatever he could on Caesar, um, to, to smear him because this was another thing is that in these trials, it was totally fair game to just either make stuff up about your opponent in order to, to get people on your side or to or to find some aspect of the other person's personal life to bring up in order to make him look bad. But this guy, Dolabella, couldn't find anything. And so the thing that he had to to go to was this this incident in Caesar's past. Now he was still a young man at this point, so it was just a you know a few years earlier. Um, in um, C- Caesar had been uh, sent to um, to the province of Asia. Um, to, you know, help out his, you know, I can't remember what his position was, but basically what he'd done is he'd gone to Asia and while he was there, he spent a lot of time with the king of Bithynia. And what he was doing was he spent a lot of time there because he was developing his, um, kind of political relationships. He was gaining allies for political career. Now, this was a standard thing that any, uh, Roman in this position would do is that, you, uh, especially a, a prominent you know, member of a patrician family like Caesar was, he would go, um, cause uh, a patrician family, they had what were called their clients. So these were the people that they looked out for and they advocated on their behalf. Um, but it didn't just, it wasn't just this personal, um, client relationship. It, it also had to do with, um, going to other countries and establishing relationships with people there. And that's, so this is what he was doing in Bithynia is establishing, um, a, a close, contact with this Bithynian king for the future. And uh, it's pretty clear when you read the texts that this is what he was doing. But Caesar had spent so much time there that it said, okay, so Caesar spent a lot of time with this king, Nicomedes. Um, So, you know, 
this is probably I'm putting words in his mind, but yeah. So what's going on there? Maybe what can how can I work with this? You know, um, you know what can I do with this? Okay, so he's spending a lot of time. Oh, you know, I've got it. He had an illicit sexual relationship with this king <laughs> and and that's why he was spending so much time there and he when he came back he even um made an excuse to go back to bithynia when he shouldn't have and spend more time there so he must have just you know been having a really good time hanging out with all these kind of uh um you know eastern exotic people and you know eating grapes and lounging and doing various other sorts of activities so he brought this up at the, at the trial and um, either at the trial itself or in the published speech. We don't know which. Uh, it's possible to tell. But then from that day on, was then used by Caesar's opponents, uh, political opponents, uh, one of whom was the waffling Cicero. And so this was brought up, and then this got passed down in the biographies about him. And so to this day, um, the the common perception is that Caesar was this kind of like metrosexual, um, you know, <laughs> guy that had this, this illicit affair when he was, uh, like, you know, 18 years old or something with this Bithynian king when there's absolutely no evidence for it. And, um, so the point being that, um, you know, Caesar did a lot of stuff that, you know, he probably could be criticized for just because everyone at that point at that time did certain things, but, um, but in a sense, he was the most, during that time, he was the most, um, kind of, he had the most spotless career, really. He had personal integrity. He did things, um, according to a sense of, uh, of personal integrity and he wouldn't go against certain values. And that's why he did a lot of the things that he did because he wanted a better Rome. He wanted a better Rome for the people that lived there. And he was going to do anything that he could in order to get around the entrenched system that was, that was built and structured in such a way as to not allow the people's voice to be heard and for changes to be made. And he did, he did try for 20 years to, as we say now, work within the system. Mm-hmm. He was a lawyer for 20 years trying to bring, well, he, did things trying mm-hmm. to change the laws and change the structure and finally said, this isn't going to work. I've got to go into the army. Yeah. Well, he realized at that point that, you know, well, that was one of the things about, about the, the Republic at that time is that politicians were military leaders and the, the military leaders, the way things had progressed, um, as opposed to kind of like a standing army from, from the people living on the land, it became kind of like a mercenary army where you basically hired, hired soldiers and then you had an army. So if you have a big military general who has an army, his own army, then that is a power, a power base from which to operate. So you had that with Pompey, who was, uh, you know, a, a colleague of Caesar's for, for a long time before he eventually, you know, betrayed him and ended up leading to the civil war. But, um, yeah, general could do a lot with an army. And so Caesar spent like what, nine years in Gaul developing, um, training and, you know, getting a, a loyal army, which he could use for these purposes. And, um, and then like so many others in recent years who have tried similar things, 
he was assassinated. And that was the end of that. And we've seen that in the past 60 years, 50, 60 years on the, in our time. For the people who do the most and who have the most potential to actually change things for the better, um, just get cut down. Hugo Chavez. Hugo Chavez, JFK, RFK, MLK, you know, Doug Hammerhold, Gandhi. Gandhi um, is, Chavez. Yeah. And the list is just kind of endless. And you, so, and then you look at the past year of totally anti-Russian propaganda and the demonization of Putin and people in the Western press calling for his assassination, saying he should be taken out. I mean, it's, I mean, is this, is this the world we're living in where uh, well, it is the world, world we're living in, unfortunately, where a person who is doing everything in his power to to not only benefit the lives of the people in Russia and there and like like I said about his annual address, there are problems in Russia. There always have been, and um, and there still are. And but he is acknowledging these problems and doing something about them. And that, in my eyes, you know, makes him. To me, a, a politician worth kind of watching and seeing what he's doing. And that, those are the kind of policies that I could get behind. And I don't see anyone in Canadian politics or American politics or the UK or all these EU countries doing anything like that. And to, and for people to, to be calling for his assassination. Well, it's a, it's a shortcut to figuring out a better solution. It's a, it's an immediate validation. For, for whoever's doing the assassination, um, because they don't they don't have to they don't have to deal with any other mode of uh, operation or, or any kind of solutions to the problems. You mean just kind of, they're just kind of like they can push them under the rug or yeah they, yeah. they, they don't have to change anything they don't have yeah. to, to deal with a new paradigm exactly because that's the thing they fear is because the exist they their very existence depends on the existing paradigm continuing. And for that to go away, you know, they're out, they're out on the street, uh, you know, working at McDonald's, which I would love to see John McCain working in McDonald's. He'd live in a tent city. Yeah. California. <laughs> he would be the big man. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of McDonald's, maybe we can, we can change tack here a bit. Um, just a little commentary on the state of, you know, American society and things the way things work here and like the minimum wage i mean who can actually survive on minimum wage not possible. it's not like you can't do it um there's a recent article that that's uh, we put on sot um just yesterday i think on a, a restaurant in detroit um kind of an independent burger joint and they pay their employees 15 dollars an hour and I think minimum wage. No, in in, uh, in Michigan, I think it's eight sixty. But it's basically double minimum wage, and they're able to do it. The CEO um, is still able to make a profit. But when you in, when they, this guy was interviewed, and he basically said, "Well, how much money do I really need?" 
yeah, sure, we need to make a profit. And here's the breakdown of how much, you know, we have to pay and how much we have to make in order to make a profit and blah, blah, blah. But how much do I really need? What, you know, he says he's not an altruist, but um, he he wants to see his employees actually have a fulfilling life, not just at their work, which they do have, but, you know, in general, they, he wants them to be able to pay for their pay their bills and spend time with their families and have a good life. And yet, like. Uh, Even a capitalist like Henry Ford got it. He paid his workers and his criteria was, do my workers have enough to support their families and buy my product? Mm-hmm. That, yeah. that if I don't pay them enough to buy what I'm paying them to build, who will buy them? So it can be made from a very pragmatic, mm. capitalist, profit-motivated stance and still provide a decent life for people. It doesn't have to be a bleeding-heart liberal, oh, my God, the people, yeah. we must support them. It's just good, it's just good business. Yeah. Right. Corporate CEOs used to <clears throat> only make 10, per, 10 times more than a regular employee. Now it's like 15 now it's way over a uh, you know a hundred times. Mm-hmm. That's not required. I read fifteen hundred from Walmart. Yeah, they're they're not that smart that they require that much pay. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. it's just <laughs> not that smart. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, it looks like we may have a caller on the line. Woo! Yeah, Cor- right. Corey from North Carolina. So, Corey, are you there? Yeah. Can you hear me? Oh yeah, we can hear you. Hi. Hey, so, hey, well, how's it going, Corey? Person and in. All right. I heard you talking about what well-paying so jobs. Well, I heard you talking about yep. well-paying jobs and restaurant work, and I just wanted to chime uh-huh. in with my two cents and say that I uh, I do work at a restaurant and I work at two other jobs. And I know that the people who work mm-hmm. those jobs are generally, uh, you know, they're not necessarily the the sharpest and brightest people, but they they can also have a extremely high education and be paying off their bills. Mm-hmm. And I know a lady at Starbucks who has a PhD in English, and I call her doctor when I go in and talk to her. But I just wanted to put it out there that the highest percentage of jobs in America right now, it seems like, are in like this uh, the service industry. And when the everything goes to pieces. You know, that's a lot of people who have been uh, programmed into just service and, you know, lost a lot of skills. And I think that we've been gypped. We've been completely gypped, and it really irked me, to say the least. And I wanted to thank you guys for doing what you're doing. You rock. All right. Thanks, Corey. Yeah, well, thanks, Corey. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Well, that's certainly a good point. I mean, you know, we have a lot of very high, highly qualified people with PhDs or, you know, hardworking individuals who are working in these, uh, these low end, low paying jobs. Um, you know, we're always talking about, uh, um, brain drains and, and, mm-hmm. um, being wasted, being totally wasted. And, and um, and that's, that's just how the system would have it. I see. Yeah, the the ones with the most potential are it's it's like they are almost purpose purposely kept out of the the positions in society that would benefit society the most. So you have these overeducated people working at Starbucks. I mean, what does what does that say about American society and entropy. culture in general? It says entropy. It says entropy, and 
Um, well, again, oh, go ahead. So you're getting a schizophrenic message, too. It's just like, oh, you have to have a college education. Mm-hmm. We need our best and brightest. So you go, you take on a mountain of student debt. You try to figure out where your potential benefit would be to society. I mean, not everybody thinks this way, but you get your degree and then you come out the other end and it's like, sorry, there's nothing for you. So no. you car payment, a mortgage, student loan debt, credit card debt, yep. gas card debt. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, you've been lied to. I mean, you'd have been better off learning to be a plumber. Yeah. It's the bubble economy. Mm-hmm. You have to have bubbles here and there. And the latest one has been the education bubble. Yep. Banks are making out like, like the bandits they are on student loans. Mm-hmm. It's, it's criminal. It really is. Uh, more than student loans. I mean, there's the mortgage crisis. There's, there's yeah. all kinds of things. Yeah. The credit cards. And isn't this a student loan is the only debt you cannot declare bankruptcy on? Correct. God. And you see, so folks, <laughs> this is the freedom and democracy that that we're fighting for all over the world. Fighting own debt. The freedom to have a low-paying job, three <laughs> or four low-paying jobs, debt. We're just you know. putting it. Yeah. And yet, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. The the thing too is is that I think this the Western mindset. I mean, I want to say the states because they are the ringleader. They've lost that sense of pragmatism. Uh, And if you want to go back to Putin, he just he is the ultimate pragmatic altruist. It sounds like a contradiction in terms, but just this last move he announced in his speech, he. Uh, one of the biggest problems Russian is facing is how much of their capital is spread out in foreign investments. So he stands up there and he says, guys, all you rich guys, bring your money back. We won't ask you where it was, how you made it. We won't send people to question you. Just bring it back this one time. Yeah. And we'll just let you keep it invested in Russia and everybody will be happy. And Caesar did the same thing. He would make a tremendously advantageous proposal, but you only had one chance. You took it or you didn't. And, but moves like this are, are genius because it, it accomplishes two things. It, it brings back obviously a person who is financially savvy. They have made a ton of money, but he, it brings all that capital back to Russia with the caveat that all that financial savviness now gets put to use for the state. Genius. And it, Freaking genius. And it's it's just common sense. Um, like the the way Russia approaches like uh, relationships with, with other nations. Um, if you look at the language they use, they they yeah, friends. They they use Workers. words they use words like uh, you know, international relations based on dialogue and international law. Common cause, partnership. Um, Putin even, in reference to the the Chechen situation, he he made reference to the time at at um, you know in previous years that they that while Russia had considered former enemies friends and even allies, that these so-called friends were at the same time supporting these terrorists, um, you know, against Russia. This is the way that you know a decent um, you know decent politicians. Should should behave by common sense is that you 
you you establish dialogues with people. You you talk to them. You try to work out compromises. You look at the way the U.S. does it. It's you do this or we're going to bomb you. We're going to or you know or we're going to stage a coup in your country. We're going to pay a bunch of of um, you know violent mercenaries to to go into your capital city. You know raid your parliament building, shoot you, and we're going to put someone else in your place. You know that's the way we roll. That reminds me a lot of the uh, phone conversation between uh, Prince Bandar Bush of Saudi Arabia and um, and Putin uh, sometime before the uh, Sochi Olympics. Basically, um, Bandar wasn't happy about uh, Putin's aligning himself with Assad, and uh, and he made certain veiled or not so veiled threats about um, unleashing Chechen terrorists <laughs> at the Olympics. So, you know, bringing this back to what just happened in Chechnya, uh, I have to wonder, and coupling this with, uh, you know, the, the recent reduction in oil prices that's hurting Russia's economy, I have to wonder how far um, Saudi Arabia is, uh, is, is going in uh, trying to hurt Russia as well, having aligned itself mm-hmm. so closely with the U.S. and, and uh, the West. Mm-hmm. I think that with the distinction you're trying to make is that Putin keeps all of his doors open. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of them may be revolving, but the door is still open. Mm-hmm. The U.S. or the West seems to slam doors in people's faces. Yeah. To blow them up. To its own detriment. Yes. And then, the, then that door doesn't open again for a long, long, long time. Yeah. Well, it's like, it's like Lobachevsky said, you know, the virus doesn't realize that, you know, as the body dies, it dies with it. <laughs> You know. yeah, on the same context, uh, there is a big news in the mainstream media is that the United States is no longer the number one economic power. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. <laughs> it looks like uh, China started uh, internationalizing their accounts according to the international standards. So according to those statistics, United States makes 17.7, 17.4 trillion dollars per year, whereas China makes it 17.6 trillion dollars. But still, United States is the wealthiest country based on per capita income. But I think those numbers are skewed. But when you look at the amount of exports and the household savings in China, they have 50% of their whole GDP is in investment and household savings. So domestic. Domestic. That mm-hmm. means China can survive for a very long, long time. Mm-hmm. And it looks like United States is the largest economic power since 1870. That means 140 years. And it looks like before... Britain was for some time, and before that, China was the largest economy. So what happens if you compare domestic to domestic? Yeah. That that probably looks pretty ugly. Yeah, I think there are different criteria they use. One is they call purchasing power parity. For example, if you buy a shirt in China, it may come for a dollar. If you buy a shirt in the United States, it will be $20. So this criteria, purchasing power parity, it compares between one shirt to one shirt. Mm-hmm. It doesn't compare $1 to $20. Mm-hmm. If you compare dollar-wise, United States still bigger by 70 to 80% than China. 
but that is not the correct uh, comparison. Well, but if you look at it from from a consumer's point of view, the states isn't has to pay that twenty dollars for a shirt, so they're actually in a worse position for the same shirt. It costs them more, and also they're earning more. Okay, I see. Yeah. So Chinese earn less, spend less. Mm-hmm. Americans earn more, <coughs> probably they spend much more. <laughs> Yeah, the debt is unprecedented. It's up over 18 trillion for U.S. and public debt. This just can't be sustained that way. You can't just keep buying on debt. And also, there is another point I was reading in the mainstream media. Empire's strength depends on three factors. One is economic power. The second one is political. And the third one is military power. So... They've only got one. They only have military power, economic power, (laughs) and political power. Uh. The petrodollar is struggling. Mm -hmm. It's so sad. (laughs) (laughs) Poor little United States. Yeah, the news site says it's like every newspaper says it's like an economic earthquake. (laughs) <laughs> and it looks like people have been telling for the last two to three years, but somehow it came up in the IMF numbers only this year, and it became official this week. Countries are seeing that with the repatriation of gold being the mm-hmm. being the new thing. Even Belgium now has just announced that they want to repatriate their gold. And you look at uh, China, Russia, India. All these countries have been collecting gold for quite some time now. That's how they're offloading their petrodollars. They they still trade in dollars because that's how it has to be done. But as soon as they get those funds in, they send them right out the door and bring in physical gold. And they also see the collapse of the fiat currency. Mm -hmm. It's just a Ponzi scheme that, that has a limited shelf life. And if you think about it, the U.S. is totally at the mercy of these countries because of the amount of debt in the form of uh, treasury bonds and securities oh, that, yeah. uh, that they purchase uh, from yeah. the U.S. As if they decide to dump them, uh, the U.S. is in a lot of trouble. <clears throat> you know, China, especially, if they wanted to pull the plug. Even Japan, if they dared. Japan buys a huge amount of treasuries, but I don't think they've got the spine for it. So. And the alternative currencies, because China and Russia, they're doing their transactions in the whatever the Chinese currency, I think. Renminbi. Yeah. yeah. Also in gold, they have agreements that they will pay for things back and forth between them in gold. Well, we uh, we've been planning on doing hour-long shows, and so it looks like we might we'll run over a little bit longer today. I just wanted to ask if. Anyone else had any stories they wanted to bring up or comment on? Anything else? Well, Hollande is uh, making a visit to Putin in Russia. Oh, is he? Yeah. Uh, don't know if that has anything to do with the Mistral ship deal oh, or yeah. anything else. But <laughs> So they're meeting today. And so looking forward to hearing what that comes out. Yeah. What I thought was hilarious is how everybody is screaming that Russia's going to, if they don't deliver it, 
that Russia's going to sue. They're going to take legal action. And it's like, it's what any, he's out capitalizing the capitalists. It's like, this is what you do. We paid you for a product. You're not going to give it to us. We will sue you. What is so hard? I mean, this is, I think the West is just. How dumb. dare he? How dare he? How dare Russia act like a Western capitalist? He's following the rules. You know, he's he's saying to Ukraine, we gave you gas. You didn't pay us. We're not going to give you any more. Any shopkeeper down the road doesn't give you credit if you're not paying your bills. And everybody's just outraged that this is happening. And it's like, you stand there, but these are the rules. These are your rules. Oh, McCain comes out with, oh, France should buy those missile ships and use them for themselves. Oh, <laughs> that really? solves the problem, right? Yeah. There. Or Ukraine buy them. <laughs> no, Ukraine's broke. <laughs> yeah, but but this is the thing is that there's this level of of just just umbrage taken when he just says, you know, we're going to run this like mm-hmm. we're running Russia like a business. You know, money in has to match money going out. Preferably, there's more money coming in than going out. When we make deals, we expect them to be honored, and and people are just just going berserk when they actually stand up and say this kind of stuff. It's it's hilarious and bizarre in a way. <laughs> yeah. Look at the way they treated Putin at G20. Oh, that was embarrassing. God. Well, but uh, luckily Putin had a few friends at G20. <laughs> so yeah, and actually, yeah, they had the the BRICS meeting there, and so yeah, no. Uh, contrary to another popular urban legend, <laughs> Russia is not isolated. Um, Not at all. One of the other things uh, in the news is the uh, topple of the Israeli government coalition. Mm. And um, Lapid and and Libni were uh, kind of lashing out and staging some sort of uh, kerfuffle, and they got canned. So there's um, predicting uh, a change to the right in the politics in Israel. so what does that mean? That means they're going to probably have a little bit more hawkish leadership, possibly. Is that even um, possible? Is that even possible? <laughs> oh, dear God. It's, it's like pushing, pushing the hawkish to, to some other level um, and more uh, frontal clash with the rest of the world, like, like they need to have that as well. Um, and, and so they're... they're Apparently, Israel is worried about the White House uh, considering sanctions against mm-hmm. it uh, for its its continuing construction in Jerusalem, um, and uh, they they feel like maybe Washington is or maybe Washington is sending a signal. So it'll be a little bit interesting to see how how Israel uh, wiggles its way in and out of the new circumstances. I think part of the reason for that. Um that kind of clash that Netanyahu had with uh, Litany was because of these new uh, nationality laws, this, this new kind of idea that, uh, well, actually, it's not new at all. It's just kind of uh, fascism taken to its extreme where they um, wanted to make uh, Israel a, quote, unquote, Jewish state mm-hmm. officially or more officially than it than it has been before. It's kind of uh, institutionalized racism taken to its most logical end. And, uh, you know, you have these hardened political Zionists like Libni, uh, who are even trying to, um, take a little bit of a stand here and, and 
speak about it. And uh, apparently that's not to be tolerated. Well, it's interesting, too, that it happened right when there's a couple of countries are trying to recognize Palestine. Too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's um, the Spanish, the French, the Brits, the Irish, the Swedish are all voting and to Belgium. recognize Palestine. And how dare they? Yes. I know. And, and what did Netanyahu say to uh, to France recently? I think he said uh, it would be bad for the peace process. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do not think that word means what you think it means. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. Well, I think that's going to be it for this week, folks. Uh, we'll be back next week. We're probably going to talk about a book we've all been reading um, by Bart Ehrman called Jesus Interrupted. So we're going to get into a bit of history and talking about the Bible and uh, among whatever else comes up. So um, we look forward to speaking and you all listening. Thanks for coming. So, yeah, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Keep your truth in perspective. <laughs> Bye-bye.